0: Find, please, in your copy of Scripture, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter forty. Yeah, chapter forty-four, and we're going to start reading at verse twenty-seven, Genesis forty-four. And once you have found that, I also want you to take uh, your worship guide and uh, on the right at the end of the order of worship, there's a chart looks sort of like a family tree. I'm going to need you to get that out, if you will. Uh, the names tend to run together in the story that i 'm telling, and uh, so that we don 't get Jacob and Judah and Joseph and Rachel and Rebecca all mixed up, then if you 'd follow that i'd be uh, i 'd be grateful I think that will be real helpful for me to know i 've gotten confused all week studying myself, so i 'm going to keep the chart up here handy too genesis forty four and uh, we 're going to read at uh, beginning at verse twenty seven your servant by the way this is um, this is Judas speaking and and it this first reading might not might not make a lot of sense I think it 's going to come to make sense, I hope as the morning goes, but this is Judah speaking to his brother joseph now he doesn 't know that 's Joseph. Joseph has risen to the second most prominent position of leadership in Egypt, and, and, and Jacob and his brothers are standing there before him, and their, their father, or Judah and the brothers, so I told you I'd get this mixed. So Judah and the brothers are standing there. Jacob, the father, is back home. Judah is speaking to Joseph. We'll see if I can make this make sense. So verse 27, your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. Now, by the way, he he had two wives and 12 sons. So we know from the very beginning that we've got a family problem here. He says, I've only got one wife and two sons. You know, he says, uh, my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me. That was Joseph. He thought that Joseph was dead. And I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. That was the story told him. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, he's talking about Benjamin, the youngest brother, and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, Judah is speaking to Joseph. If the boy, the youngest boy, uh, Benjamin, is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, this, this youngest brother is his favorite. If he sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servant will bring the great head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant, Judah is talking about himself. I guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let me, let your servant remain. Let me remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, in place of Benjamin, my father's favorite. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy, the youngest son, Benjamin, my father's favorite, is not with me? No. Do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Some of you uh, will recognize the name Ken Blanchard. He's written lots of books on management and leadership. The One Minute Manager was one of them. A brilliant, brilliant. Uh, well, thinker about leadership. I, I had the opportunity to go to a uh, workshop down in um, uh, Williamsburg, Virginia, when we were living in Richmond, and uh, there were about forty participants. And uh, everybody there was was in a role and responsibility larger than mine. It was really it was really great to be there, especially with Ken Blanchard and. At one point during the workshop, he divided us just arbitrarily, randomly. He, I think he did something like this, you know, this half come over here and this half go over there and, and, and I was in the half that sat down. So I want you to get the picture now. There's a circle of chairs facing inward. So there are about 20 of us sitting in this, these chairs facing each other, facing the middle of the circle And then the other 20, he said, I want you to line up, each of you stand behind one of those that's seated. So there are about 20 of of us in the circle looking inwardly at each other, and and we each have somebody standing behind us. And he says, now those of you standing up, in just a moment, I want you to lean forward and whisper into into the ear of the one sitting in front of you. Words that you wish you had heard more when you were growing up. Now get that. Uh, these leaders around Richmond are standing there, 20 of them in a circle facing the backs of the heads of people. And, he, and, and they're supposed to lean forward and, lean, uh, and whisper into our ears now words they wish they'd heard more growing up. That was a long time ago. I still remember the words that the first man leaned forward and whispered in my ear. He said, I love you. And then Ken Blanchard said, I want you to rotate one to the left. And so they went all around the circle. So I heard every every person that was standing, I heard every one of them whisper into my ear words that they wish they'd heard more growing up, the most common phrase. I love you. If my mind is not, my memory is not playing tricks on me, the second most common phrase was, I'm proud of you. Leaders with roles and responsibilities greater than my own, each of whom had, or many of whom had a little child still living inside them, longing to hear from dad or mom, I love you, and I'm proud of you. Now, some of you can't relate to that. You had such wonderful, uh, have or had such wonderful fathers that you just can't relate to that. But there's some listening to me who know exactly what that's like. And were you to be one of the ones standing and you were to lean forward and whisper, you would whisper something very similar. I love you and or I'm proud of you. When my mother died, I believe the first thought I had was, ain't nobody ever going to love me like mama loved me. The love of a mother is unmatched, unparalleled, unequaled. But fathers love deeply too. And we we are wired to long for the blessing, the affirmation, the approval of fathers. In the Old Testament, the blessing of the father is really important. In the Middle Eastern world, it is still far more important in, 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 in open and formal way, but even here in our culture, the, 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 the approval, the applause, the affection of dad, the blessing of the father is really important. We're wired like that. Which brings us to our, our story. So get that bulletin out, and I want you to look at the chart because I'm going to go over it real quick, all right? Isaac and Rebecca are at the top. They have two sons, Esau and Jacob, and there's a line from Isaac to Esau because the Bible says in Genesis 25:35, Isaac loved Esau, and Rebekah loved Jacob. So Jacob grows up knowing that his brother is his father's unquestioned favorite. Jacob married two wives, which was not... Um, unheard of in that day, was not frowned upon in that day. Uh, probably, uh, nope, I'm not gonna go there. It was, um, <laughs> it was uh, he, married, he married two wives and his unquestioned favorite was Rachel. Now with Leah and the two maidservants whose names don't even appear on the pages of scripture, he had 10 sons with Leah and the maidservants of his wives. With his favorite, Rachel, he had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, all right? So keep that open because I think um, if I get confused, you can can go back and at least be straight in your own mind. So let me tell the story, so Isaac and Rebekah have two sons, and as I said, Isaac loved Esau. In fact, those three words, Genesis 25-25, 20, I believe it is, say those words, and those three words define the childhood. Get this now, define the childhood of Jacob. He grows up knowing that his childhood is defined in those three words. My or, Isaac loves Esau. My father loves my brother. He grows up with that, that sense of... My dad loves my brother. I'm just not even even on his radar. He then, he grows up. We fast forward several years. He gets married. He has a favorite of, of those two wives, and that's Rachel. And the firstborn son with Rachel is Joseph. And boy, does he love Joseph. He loves Joseph, and he loved him so much, he bought him, remember, this multicolored coat, this fancy, probably expensive coat of many colors. It might, he might as well have taken out a, a, an ad in the paper. He might as well have put up a billboard on Memorial Parkway. It might as well have been a Facebook post. He might as well have tweeted, I love Joseph, he is my favorite. Well Joseph knew that. He even had a dream one night that he ruled over his eleven brothers. His eleven brothers knew that, of course. And people were people then like people are people now, and that had to be hurtful. They resented Joseph. So one day they decided to take care of things. They They decided they'd kill him. They grabbed him. They beat him. And then Judah, here's Judah. Judah comes into the picture. Judah says, why kill him when we can sell him? And so they sold him to some merchants that were passing through on the way to Egypt. So they got rid of Joseph and and they um, made some money on the side. Now to cover things up, they took that coat, that audacious, ostentatious, disgracious, vexatious coat of many colors, and they ripped it and they dipped it. They ripped it in several pieces and they dipped it into the blood of an animal, and they went to dad, went to Jacob, father, bad news. A wild animal has mauled Joseph and he's dead. Jacob's heart broke. Fast forward several more years, now Joseph has risen to, the, to become vice pharaoh. He's the, he's the vice pharaoh in charge of food distribution in Egypt, he's the second most powerful man in the whole land. And now his brothers appear before him, they're looking for food, but they don't know that that's their brother up there, he doesn't look the same, they certainly didn't expect to see him again. They don't know that's Joseph, but he knows it's them. And Joseph wants to see his dad. So he makes up this plan. He says, leave the youngest one, the baby boy, Benjamin, his only, Joseph's only full brother, full-blooded brother. Leave him here and go back to what we now call Israel and get your father and bring him. And this is where the text that we read a moment ago comes in. Judah says, oh my Lord, please don't, please don't make us leave Benjamin, Benjamin is daddy's favorite. And if we go back without Benjamin and my father fears that something has happened to him, it will kill him. Please, my Lord, let me stay. Let me stay here and the brothers will go back and get our father just like you want, but please don't break my father's heart by leaving Benjamin here. Something's happened to Judah. Just a few years earlier, he he made up this story about Joseph being mauled. He was, look, any way to get rid of Joseph, and it didn't care, it didn't matter to him that he broke his father's heart, just didn't matter. His hatred of Joseph, his resentment of this favorite son was so deep, he was willing to break his father's heart. But something has changed. Here's the great opportunity. He could have gotten rid of Benjamin too. He could have left them there in Egypt. They could have gone back to Israel and, and said to their father Jacob, Dad, more bad news. You've lost another son. Benjamin's gone. He could have been rid of Benjamin. But Judah has changed. His father hasn't. His father is still the flawed, favorite-playing dad that he's always been. But something's happened to Judah. Judah now doesn't want to hurt his father. Somehow Judah has become willing to live with the fact that his father still has a favorite. That his father is a flawed father. But he's somehow changed and he's willing to live with that and he loves his father so deeply that that he'll protect his father even though his father is imperfect. Now you can draw, I'm sure, several um, morals or lessons from that story but I want to point out for this Father's Day, I want to point out uh, three. Number one, uh, you don't have to live out the script handed to you by your family. <clears throat> Let's, let me talk about family of origins for a moment. You, the fa- your family of origin, of course, is the family from which you came. And, and families have traditions. And they pass those traditions down from generation to generation. You might call that a script. So Carrie and, and, and I, uh, my wife and I, we inherited scripts about marriage from our parents. Now, both of us had wonderful parents who had strong marriages that lasted till death did them part. But, but we, were, we inherited different scripts about marriage. So my father-in-law, Carrie's dad, always, every time, opened the car door for his wife, Carrie's mother. My dad never opened the car door for my mom. Carrie's dad often bought gifts and flowers for his wife, Carrie's mom. My dad didn't. I'm, literally, one day, I saw, he handed her, my dad handed my mom a $20 bill and said, go buy yourself something nice. That's the way my mom and dad did it. Carrie's mom and dad always exchanged cards on important occasions. I don't. I don't ever remember my mom and dad exchanging cards. Somehow Carrie preferred the script that she'd been handed (laughs) to the one that I'd been handed. (laughs) So though I'm not the romantic that my father-in-law was, I've kind of changed scripts. You would have thought that Jacob would have changed scripts. He grew up in a home in which he knew that his childhood was defined by three words, Isaac loves Esau, my dad loves my brother. Knowing the pain of that, people were people then like people are people now, knowing the pain of that, you would have thought that he would have been very careful not to show any favoritism, but he didn't. Everybody knew that Joseph was his favorite and then when he thought Joseph was dead, he transferred most favorite son status to Benjamin and all his brothers knew who daddy's favorite was. You've been handed a script, and some of those scripts are are wonderful, the traditions and the family traits. Some of them that you pass from generation to generation are admirable, they're beautiful, but not not all scripts that we inherit are are wonderful. Some Some of us in this room inherited a script of abuse. Some of us in this room inherited a script of neglect. I don't think anybody intentionally passes that script on, but we do it unwittingly, unknowingly, just without thinking of it. I don't think anybody ever woke up and said, my dad abused me, so I'm going to abuse my children. I don't think anybody ever woke up and said, my my mother neglected us, I'm going to neglect our children. But it's just so deeply ingrained in us. It's just so much a part of us. It's part of the script that we inherited. And sometimes those bad things get passed from generation to generation. But you don't have to. You can break it. You can be the end of the chain. You can choose not to follow the bad script. Now, some of you, again, are thinking, man, the only script I got was wonderful. I'm just trying not to mess it up. But some of you know what I'm talking about when I say you inherited a bad script, but you don't have to follow it. You can change. By God's grace, you can be the end of the chain, and the bad script can end with your generation. One, you don't have to follow the script uh, that was handed to you. Two, you don't have to let the one who let you down drag you down. You don't have to let the one who let you down drag you down. A friend of mine I spoke with recently and who gave me permission to tell this part of the story spoke of a difficult childhood. My friend did not have a nurturing father. The father was not abusive in the way that we tend to think of abuse, but he was not affirming and He didn't give the kind of blessing that we're wired to need and long for. There were no Attaways, no I'm Prouds, no I love yous. And so under the careful direction of a counselor, my friend said that's important that you know under the careful direction of a counselor, he sat one day with an empty chair because his father was no longer available. So he sat looking Facing an empty chair and had a conversation with his dad. He went back to the childhood to say some things that, that, that he needed for his dad to hear. My friend had inherited some senses of inadequacy and shame that had nothing to do with what he had done or had not done. Had everything to do with a poor father. And so he he said something like this I'm not going to carry around anymore the sense of shame and inadequacy I inherited from you. And he's speaking to this chair. I'm going to give you the shame and inadequacy back. I'm not going to carry it around anymore. So my friend has this, as an adult now, shame and inadequacy that has nothing to do with his behavior or choices, and everything to do with a dad that just didn't do a good job as a dad. And so he says, you know, this, is real, this shame, this inadequacy, it's not mine. So I, I'm, just, I'm not going to carry it around anymore, I'm going to give it back. Some of us may need to have a conversation with an empty chair because there are probably some of us in this room and and, and worshiping with us by television who are carrying that shame and inadequacy that has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with the fact that you had a flawed, imperfect parent. But you don't have to carry that around anymore. Some of us may need to have a talk with an empty chair and some of us may, may need to forgive our parents. Yes, forgive. That doesn't mean you, you have to continue to subject yourself to a, an abusive relationship. It does not mean you have to trust somebody who's untrustworthy. It doesn't even mean you have to feel affection. A good friend of mine in Kentucky was criticized by his mom until she died. He's in his 50s, in his 50s she was highly critical, couldn't do anything right. He was a highly successful guy, wonderful follower of Jesus, involved in his church and family man, but he couldn't do anything right. And I, I said, man, I don't know, this is, I told him, I said, this is hard to watch. He said, I've learned something about the 10 commandments. The Bible says, honor your father and mother. It doesn't say feel affection towards your father and mother. Isn't that interesting? He said, I, I can't feel that affection that I wanna feel. But I honor her, he said, I I treat her with respect and gratitude and honor. I treat her with honor even though I don't feel that affection that he he said I would love to feel. Some of you may not have the ability to feel warm fuzzies toward flawed parents, but you can can treat them with honor and you've got to, you're going to have to forgive them. And it might not be your parents. It might be somebody else really important to you who let you down. But you can't let the one who let you down drag you down. Because, as someone said, if you don't heal what hurt you, you will bleed on people who didn't cut you. If you don't heal what hurt you, you will bleed on people who didn't cut you. So if you're coming to my house and on the way you get waylaid, and you get beat up and cut up, and you come see me, and I say, oh, man, what's wrong? And you reach out, and you hug me, and we hug each other, and I say, I'm so sorry. Then when we back up, you know, I'm going to have blood all over my shirt. And I'm not the one that cut you. I just said, man, I'm sorry, and hugged you, and, and now I got to go get a new shirt. See, when you're, when you're hurt and your heart is bleeding. Then when, 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 when people come into your life and they get close to you and, and you connect, then, then you bleed on them. And you hurt them sometimes, not, not intending to. To heal the, the hurt, some of us are going to have to forgive flawed, imperfect parents. Judah did. I don't know how he did it. But Judah had come to a place where he understood that my dad is a, is a flawed father. But he didn't want to hurt him anymore. You don't have to live the bad script that was handed to you. And don't let the one who let you down drag you down. Third, you might have to make it with or without someone else. Last week, we talked about the fact that we're all here to do what we're all here to do, that you're here for a purpose, that God has a divine reason for your being here. You're not here just to take up space and and breathe air. You're here to fulfill your part in God's mission. And you might have to fulfill that part in God's mission without the applause and the approval and the attaways of someone really important to you. I learned... This phrase, wowza, W-O-W-S-E, with or without someone else, from a lady named Laurie Beth Jones. who She said she was trying to start a company on her own, and every time she'd go to a bank, she would get turned down, and she would leave the bank, and she'd say to herself, wowza, with, with or without someone else. I'm going to start this company, she said, with or without someone else. And somebody here is going to have to fulfill your part in God's plan. You're going to have to do what you were put here on earth to do without the applause of your boss, or your peers, or your spouse, or your parents, or somebody whose approval and affection and applause would mean so much to you. But you might not get it, and you're going to have to fulfill your place in God's plan without him or her. You know, Laurie Beth Jones, this book, she wrote it in, It's not a Christian book, but she said, where I got the wowza idea was from Jesus. Because, she said, in his ear were always these voices of dissent and distraction and discouragement. But he still did what he was here uh, to do. The Bible says in Luke nine fifty one, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. With a chin like iron, he set out toward the cross. Despite the dissent, despite the discouragement, he set out toward the cross. The Jews dismissed him because he didn't live up to their idea of a Messiah. His family disparaged him. At one time, even saying he's out of his mind. His brothers disbelieved him. Peter denounced him because he was always talking about death, and then Peter denied him. The religious leaders demonized him. And when his death was imminent, his best friends deserted him. And yet Jesus had set his face toward the cross, and he stayed the course. When his people people dismissed him and his family denounced him, he stayed the course toward the cross. When his brothers disbelieved him, and his friend Peter denounced him and denied him, he stayed the course toward the cross. When the religious leaders demonized him and his best friends deserted him, he stayed the course toward the cross. With a resolution that would not waver and a love that would not quit. He knew what was coming. He and everybody else had seen those Roman executions. He knew what was coming, and he knew more than that that he would bear the weight of the shame and the guilt of all your sins and mine. And he stayed the course toward the cross. And when he bowed his head and died and said, it is finished, it was finished. And he took your shame and your guilt and your sin to the borrowed tomb with him. And then he rose again on the third day. And he said, if you'll trust your life to me, to all you have and all you are, and not your goodness, then you can experience so beautiful and so transformative. Jesus called it a new birth. It's like being born again. And so I'm asking you this Father's Day, have you had that experience? Have you chosen to trust you're here and you're hereafter to Jesus? If you will, you can enjoy life at its best in this imperfect world and life that never ends in the world of perfection with Jesus. And I invite you to do that. I'm gonna invite you to do that right now, not just next week. We're gonna sing a hymn, it is hymn number 582. And so I'm gonna invite you to do business with the creator of the universe whose spirit is among us. To come forward to the ministers who are here and say, I'm ready to follow Jesus and I'm ready to go public. Or to say, I'm a follower of Jesus already and I've been worshiping here and I feel at home here and the Spirit of God is prompting me to be here officially and I want to be officially a part of the church. We sing not just to wrap the service up but to, to welcome you. So would you stand and let's all sing.